Hi, you're listening to the Law and Blockchain Podcast. This is your host, Amy Wan. The Law and Blockchain Podcast is part of the To the Extent That podcast series by the American Bar Association Business Law Section. The ABA Business Law Section podcasts provide general information and are not a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ABA Business Law at AmericanBar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hi, everybody. This is Amy Wan with the Law and Blockchain podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about security tokens and their issuance with attorney Robin Sosno. So Robin is the founding partner of Sosno and Associates PLLC. It's an innovative boutique legal practice in New York City. And she also co-founded Digital Law. Sorry, I'm just going to start this over. (laughs) Three, two, sorry, what? Oh, sounds good. And if you want to mention that we're we're teamed up, that that we have the West Coast office as well. Oh, okay. Unless, all right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Three, two, one. Hi, everybody. This is Amy Wan with the Law and Blockchain Podcast. And this week, we have Robin Sosno. Robin, welcome to the show. Hi, Amy. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So Robin is the founding partner of Sosno and Associates PLC. It's an in- innovative boutique legal practice in New York City. And I actually head up the West Coast office. She has also co-founded Digital Securities Law Group, which is another New York City-based joint venture legal practice, which is focused specifically on the blockchain industry. Um, Robin prides herself on staying ahead of the curve at the intersection of finance, technology, and law. And, you know, she's a regular speaker at fintech events such as OTC Markets, Core Summit, Security Token Summit, and OnChain 19. Um, Robin and I actually go way back. We were both general counsels of real estate crowdfunding platforms back in the day when crowdfunding regulations were um, just taking off. So it's, it's been quite a journey. <laughs> It it sure has, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be working with you now um, professionally and also to be appearing on your podcast. Fantastic. So let's just launch into this. Um, there are a lot of acronyms floating around there. There's ICOs, there's STOs, there's IEOs. What is the difference between all these acronyms in the alphabet soup? Oh, and there are more, too. There's digital assets, digital asset securities, cryptocurrencies, native tokens. <laughs> the, 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 the language goes on and on. But to, to answer your question, so the ICO um, is quite different than an STO in that, so I'll, I'll start with STOs. STOs or um, DSOs, digital securities offerings or security token offerings, relate to private company issuance of uh, some form of ownership on-chain. So, for example, a company who's looking to conduct a, an STO, a security token offering, could potentially be tokenizing a class of ownership, a class of stock or membership interest within their corporation or LLC, and in connection with that action, 
be raising capital similarly as they would in any kind of uh, seed round or series round. ICOs predate the STO. Um, they emerged in 2015, 2016, went really hard mainstream in 2017. And ICOs were capital raising rounds utilizing cryptocurrencies. Um, these tokens arguably were not security, which became the the core argument between our regulators and the companies who were conducting such activities during that time period. Now, the the I the IEO, um, just to wrap it up here, um, relates to companies who are looking to um, launch a capital raising round on an exchange. So rather than uh, conducting an offering um, privately in the market, they're utilizing an exchange, an online platform for the, the listing and launch of their new token. I'm just going to pop in, uh, pop in there and clarify that these exchanges are not licensed exchanges. They are crypto exchanges. Um, and so oftentimes uh, these raises are, are not being done um, with any licensure or any sort of compliance. A couple of them are trying to be compliant, I think, but <laughs> from what I've seen, most of them are not. Do you know whether there were any IEOs, whether there have been any IEOs on the digital securities exchanges, such as OFN? I don't, I don't think so. Um, I certainly haven't heard of that. And I, I don't, you know, my opinion is that the OFNs and the T-Zeros of the world probably at this point don't want to handle something that exotic. They're trying to really um, nail down their core business. But that's, that that's my opinion. <laughs> you know, you mentioned a lot of other nomenclature, you know, digital assets, tokenized securities. What is the difference between one of these security tokens or tokenized equity um, things and just a normal digital asset? Sure. So digital assets um, encompass a very, very broad spectrum of of in the, in a blockchain setting um, tokens that could represent cryptocurrencies that could represent um, utility tokens or native tokens um, or could represent digital security so security tokens security tokens or digital securities I'm using those words interchangeably and they are a subset of digital assets. The SEC commonly refers to to digital securities as digital asset securities. Um, so the nomenclature is used differently by different folks, and it's certainly helpful to create um, a standard in discussion when communicating with others um, in order to clarify who means what when using these words. Right. It's funny because I think on the security token side, the nomenclature is more um, self-descriptive um, and, you know, justifiable. I think on the uh, 
non-regulated or non-compliant side, it tends to just proliferate because technologists think that if they change the name of something, then you know, it's it's not an ICO mm-hmm. anymore. I've seen ITO, <laughs> initial token offering, IEO, right? And they think, oh, if we change the name, it's something different. And from a securities law perspective, I'm like, no, that's that's not the case. You still just have to look at whether or not it complies with securities law. <laughs> um, that's right. And you and I actually both came from the crowdfunding world and much of the crowdfunding world has kind of shifted in some, not all, but has shifted in focus from, you know, traditional crowdfunding into um, applying the crowdfunding regulations to token Mm -hmm. offerings. So do you want to quickly cover what exemptions are being used in token token offerings? Sure. Yeah, it's it's a great observation. And it's been a, a really interesting ride in that when I got involved in equity crowdfunding back when the Jobs Act was was being um, approved by Congress and signed by President Obama at the time. I had I didn't know about blockchain back then. I wasn't a lucky early bird. Um, this was tw- 2012, 2013. So it, w- it was only later where the intersection between this new um, digital asset economy and the crowdfunding the whole crowdfunding environment and ecosystem began to converge. And I, I think that it happened really naturally because with the ICOs, we saw that there was just a tremendous interest in um, retail investor participation in these private offerings. And because they were being conducted predominantly in a completely unregulated and non-compliant way, um, we and enforcement didn't quite catch on until uh, a bit later, we got to see really a free, what the free market looked like um, in the context of the public's interest in in these effectively schemes. So when our regulators, at least here in the U.S., got involved, they started giving guidance as to how companies could be conducting, conducting these activities in a compliant manner. And... Um, from the beginning, with Hinman's remarks, he started pointing us to the Jobs Act. So the Jobs Act created, uh, the Jobs Act stands for the Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act. And it passed in 2012, as I mentioned, and it created through um, several different titles, a framework for retail investment crowdfunding, which is covered under Title III. Um, a, a reform to Regulation A, which we all refer to as Reg A+, that also provides retail investor participation, but for much larger deal sizes. And then finally, under Title II, um, the Jobs Act lifted the ban on general solicitation, which had been priorly referred to as Regulation D, Rule 506. Um, it bifurcated Rule 506 into 506B and 506C, with Rule 5060 um, allowing for general solicitation in private placement offerings. Now, it, it took years for this to all roll out. Um, this was 20, the act was 2012, lifting of the ban 2013, Reg A Plus 2015, regulation crowdfunding 2016. And the blockchain thing was, was having its own timeline and ride. 
But by 2017 and 2018, when the enforcement began in the ICO context, we started to see the convergence where private company issuers and online platforms who were facilitating these deals started to look to um, Reg D 506C, and then we had the whole SAFT situation um, <laughs> in, <laughs> in connection with that exemption. And we, we have regulation crowdfunding, which, which allows private companies who are selling um, what they concede to be digital asset securities to, to raise capital from retail investors um, through an online funding portal. You mentioned the SAFT, which is a very interesting, I think, in some cases, controversial topic. Do you want to talk about mm-hmm. that really quickly? Yeah, so the SAFT was um, an instrument that came out of Cooley, um, I believe 2017, but please correct me if I'm wrong on that. And nope, I think you're right. It, it was 2017. <laughs> It's a it's a securities instrument that is a um, a variation on the safe, which stands for Simple Agreement for Future Equity. This agreement um, was drafted as Simple Agreement for Future Token, and it was a it was structured as a derivative security instrument that would allow um, a buyer to acquire the right to to acquire something in the future which was going to be that token. And it contemplated that the token would only be sold or um, released at a time when the network that it exists within was sufficiently decentralized um, in order for the, the token to not effectively be a security. So while the SAFT itself is a security instrument and had to be sold in compliance with the securities laws, um, the token itself, the argument at least was, would not be a security. And there was a lot of heat over this. Um, it's, <laughs> you know, it's it's an old topic now at this point. People aren't using the SAFT. I I myself did not. Um, I was I wasn't comfortable with it, and I didn't work with it in my practice. But I certainly had a lot of conversations with a lot of lawyers about whether or not. Um, we should follow the trend or or stay away and i'm i'm ultimately glad i stayed away i think many people who stayed away are very glad that they stayed away but i i do know many investors who did use um safs when they were investing and yes. um you know you know my company sagewise has has uh in, investors and we raised a, a seed round in 2018 not using a saft um we used a, a safety so they got equity and mm-hmm. tokens to the extent we, that we ever tokenized but we haven't mm-hmm. um but you know they've told me over the past couple months that they many of my investors feel like they got gypped or taken advantage of because many of these companies that promised to tokenize never actually did. And a lot of these companies purported to be decentralized, but really actually weren't. And so now the companies still own 100% of their equity and have Mm -hmm. not tokenized, which, I mean, I feel like there are some pending litigation issues there, um, but it's just, it's very problematic. 
It it certainly is. I think um, our mutual friend, Lewis Cohen, also contributed to a report. I think it was by Cardozo Law School back in late 2017 or early 2018 that talked about the um, downsides of the SAFT. So if if anyone's interested in that, um, you can easily find it on Google. Um, let's that's, turn- that's a great shout out. <laughs> yeah. Um, Lewis, Lewis is a great guy. Yeah. Uh, a fantastic writer. <laughs> um, let's talk about STOs real quick. Um, you know, you and I sat on a panel a couple months ago for Security Token Academy. And, you know, at first, a lot of these STOs were um, some sort of, you know, utility token of a decentralized project, but just done compliantly according to securities law, but you actually mentioned that there's a really interesting trend that's been happening lately, which is tokenizing utility tokens less and less, um, and instead are now just tokenizing equity. Can you talk more about that? Sure. So for for quite some time now, I'd say um, about a year and a half, I've been working really heavily in this space. and. About um, a year ago, I partnered up with Rivalis Wahab, so Simon, Simon Rivalis um, and Kaiser Wahab, who who run a um, a law firm in downtown New York City, and we launched Digital Securities Law Group to focus on this exact space. So what we do is we help private companies and private funds structure and um, Put the paperwork together for those those entities' offerings, and I, I hesitate because I'm debating which direction to go in first here. So there's on the private company side, um, we do much of the same work that we do in our traditional securities practice, where we help them navigate the exemptions that are available to them. We help them think through what it is that they want to sell based on where they are in their company's life cycle um, and what their future capital raising goals are. Predominantly, companies like to tokenize non-voting non-voting stock, either non-voting common or non-voting preferred. Um, the, the consideration there is that they anticipate raising money from a wide array of people, and they also contemplate allowing after the securities have been sufficiently seasoned and are no longer restricted, they, in, they intend or at least want to um, position themselves for the eventual trading of those tokens on regulated exchanges. On the fund side, it's, um, it's a similar fact pattern as you would have in a traditional fund context. So whether that's going to be a real estate fund or private equity fund or crypto fund, venture fund, you're still dealing with the same um, uh, securities law framework um, with the same limitations um, on investor headcount um, and things of that nature. From um, a structuring perspective, we're looking at, is this going to be an LLC or a partnership? Um, Where is it going to be domiciled? Are you anticipating investors onshore, offshore? Right, so it's the same considerations that you have when, when um, conducting a, a traditional offering, but now within the framework and with the additional 
considerations that come from having a token that that in fact represents ownership in that business. So are there other more interesting or exotic projects that you guys have been working on at Digital Securities Law Group other than um, STO issuances and um, crypto or, or token venture funds? Are there, are there you know, interesting projects you want to mention? Um, I mean, I've, I've been very pleased with the two recent deals that we, we put out. Um, one of them is called Dora Hacks. And what I really enjoyed about this project is the, the founder is an incredible guy. His name's Jianan Zhang. He's brilliant. He's based in Beijing. Um, he organizes global hackathons and is a real innovator in the way that he approaches his business and also in the way that he went out to raise capital. So what I what I enjoyed beyond Jianan was also that we got to use the crowd, regulation crowdfunding exemption for this for this offering. And that campaign is live right now. So we're in December 2019. And, and um, that campaign is live on Republic. Ah, very, very cool. And Republic um, does a lot of regulation crowdfunding token projects, correct? That's right. Yeah. So Republic's been around for, I think, as long as the, I think they were one of the first funding portals back in 2016. And they, um, their their founder Ken Nguyen, who I think you know too, he's also involved with AngelList and CoinList, and they've got this really great network. And CoinList and Republic both have the the digital securities and crypto angle. Um, Republic launched. I think that actually uh, Dora Hacks was the first tokenized equity offering to launch on on Republic. Wow, fantastic. Yeah. I think there are probably a couple other regulation crowdfunding platforms that also will do secu- uh, yeah. tokenized securities, but but not all of them do, right? That's right. 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 So these funding portals, they're, they're FINRA members. So they're SEC registered um, and FINRA um, members under the funding portal classification. And depending on how they structured their initial application and how their relationship with FINRA is going, they may receive more or less pushback about integrating um, digital securities offerings into um, the types of offerings that they're facilitating on their portal. Got it. So, I, yeah, I think Start mm-hmm. Engine does. I think Seed Invest is planning to, if they if they haven't already. Um, but I, I think that's it, right? I think MicroVentures either has or intends to as well. Right, right. They did do, they did, um, I think they helped out in the St. Regis Aspen deal, or that might have been Indiegogo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that deal went bust. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let me ask you this. Why would an issuer consider tokenizing their equity or security? So tokenization affords um, private companies who go that route many, many benefits. It, to the extent that they are going to be pushing out um, distributions of, for example, dividends, it 
creates a much simpler framework for organizing, tracking, and facilitating um, those actions. Similarly, to the extent that the the securities are voting, then similarly um, conducting those voting measures can be um, conducting those actions can be baked into the token smart contract in a way that makes um, such actions down the road simpler to conduct. From from a tra- uh, from a liquidity perspective, there's of course at least in the case of digital securities, the potential that they would um, that a market could be created around them down the road. So to back up there, securities that are sold under Regulation D or Regulation Crowdfunding are subject to a 12-month lockup where they are restricted and can only be um, transferred in limited circumstances, if at all. After the lockup period, expires, the the securities become um, transferable. And there are platforms such as T0 and Open Finance Network, who's been mentioning throughout this podcast, who facilitate the online um, peer-to-peer trading of digital securities. These are non-custodial broker-dealers and ATS platforms that are registered with the SEC um, and have the app and with FINRA and have the um, relevant permissibility and licensure and compliance protocols to be able to conduct these activities. So for companies who who don't want to go the traditional um, seed round, series round, potential IPO or direct listing on uh, a national exchange can consider a digital security as part of a longer-term strategy to provide liquidity to shareholders without having to enter the public market. Yeah, I think the liquidity aspect is is really interesting. Um, I was sitting next to in a investor in this space a couple months ago, and he told me that the thing he was most excited about was the fact that Traditionally, you have these very frozen, very rigid private markets, and to the extent that anyone is selling, you know, stocks of some company, some company that is still private, you have to go through an intermediary. There is a mm-hmm. lot, you know. There's, uh, you're going to end up in over, um, you know, ten thousand dollars at least, five figures in um, transactional fees just to make that trade go through. Whereas with digital securities, you can encode into the smart contracts um, a lot of the compliance, and that will allow the um, transaction fees for secondary trading of of private equities to be mm-hmm. much more efficient. Mm-hmm. Right, and I and I think technology maybe the technology is ahead of of the people on this one, yes. where <laughs> regardless of how advanced the technology is, there still has to be a market on the other side. And creating that market, I think, is where where we're where we as a as a community are faltering at this point. And maybe that's education or maybe it's the barriers to institutional participation. Um, and maybe it's our regulators. You know, there you 
you can point the finger in a lot of directions here, but overall, we haven't seen a robust market um, rally around digital securities the way that we saw the market come together around ICOs. Right, right. Although, you know, I, I think for a good reason, right? Because ICOs right. is pretty much do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of hype and a lot of frog. Yes, totally. Um, great. Robin, is there anything else you want to tell our listeners? I wanted to ra- raise one topic, um, and I think it's a, a good one to leave everyone with. There was a development this week at the SEC where they they released a proposal for the reform of the accredited investor definition. And it's something that I've been working on for some time and I'm pretty passionate about. And I just encourage everyone to, to read it and get involved and submit comments because this is a big opportunity for us as a country to come together behind something that will really have a positive impact on so many people who have been historically excluded from participation in the private markets because they they didn't meet an economic standard that um, was the only standard that was historically um, integrated into the definition and the rule. And with the proposed change, we're now broadening the the or, or the SEC is proposing to broaden the definition to include non um, financial based determinants. And the the list is quite long, but I, I think that we really need to rally and support this and get this through. So it's a call to action. Um, and thanks for the opportunity to, to share it. Fantastic. And on that note, Robin, how can people find and follow you? Oh, well, you can um, find me on my website, jobsactlawyers.com. You can find me on Twitter, Robin Sosnow, ESQ. Um, and of course, call me, email me. All the info is available online. Amy, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. Um, happy holidays to you and your family. And I look forward to seeing you soon. All right. Likewise. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.